after the Dark Knight, the head of Warner Brothers at the, at the premiere saying, you got to do the Riddler. Uh, Leo is the Riddler, you know, saying to me, you, you got to you got to tell Chris, Leo is the Riddler. And I just, dude, that's not, that's not the way we work. Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. I'm Josh Horowitz, and today on Happy, Sad, Confused, I've got a gentleman with a positively legendary geek resume. Here we go, guys. He's a showrunner, director, writer, and producer of such films and TV as Blade, The Dark Knight Trilogy, Man of Steel, The Sandman. He's just wrapped up the second season of maybe the granddaddy of all sci-fi foundation on Apple TV+. It's, of course, Mr. David Goyer on Happy, Sad, Confused for the very first time. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a listen listener of your show, so it's a bit surreal to be on it. So hopefully I don't shit the bed. I don't know if I'm allowed. Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, you're allowed to swear. Okay. <laughs> I, tr tr trust me, I probably put, I've definitely put in more time watching your stuff than you listening to my stuff. So it's a mutual admiration society. Okay, okay. We'll have a good time. Um, first of all, uh, I feel like we need to adjust the Wikipedia entry. It leads off with Nick Fury, agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. We need to get I, team, team Goyer on this. What's going on? Yeah, I don't even. It's, uh, yeah, I we we should. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's so that, what's so annoying about that, and sometimes people will give that as a credit or cite that as an example of like my not being a good screenwriter. And it's it's like I think after we had done Blade, uh, I had uh, Marvel had said, "Hey, we're going to do a Nick Fury movie," and new. I don't know if you remember New World, which sure. made a bunch of like cheesy B movies, and and uh, we're going to make it for I don't know fifteen million dollars. Can you write a script? So I wrote a script. That that whole thing went away, and goodbye. And then some eight years later, they said, "Oh, good news! We're going to do it as a TV movie at Fox for like three million dollars with David Hasselhoff. Do you want to?" taking nothing away from David Hasselhoff. Do you want to, do you want to rewrite it? And I, I was like, no, I don't want any involvement with it. No, goodbye. And I was rewritten God, by God knows whom and, and, or how many people. And then, you know, there it is. And so that's, is. that's the, uh, that's the short version of the sad story of, you know, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, David Hasselhoff is the one true Nick Fury. We can all agree on that. Yeah, he's the, yeah. he's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You look, you have been you've had a remarkable career and it keeps going and it's very bountiful as we speak today with, um, you know, Foundation and, and Sandman going strong. Um, mm. But like, I mean, talk to me a little bit about take, taking a step back and looking at the, on the macro level like we get to do on this podcast, like especially the last 25 years. Seemingly, mm -hmm. you have been working pretty consistently, almost nonstop. Does it feel like you've had a very steady trajectory ascent? Like, have there been times that don't show up in that IMDb where you felt like you were in writer, director, producer jail and that it could all, it could all end? Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, it doesn't matter how successful or not we are. We're artists and we're all riddled with insecurity and we all think that, you know, it will have, you know, end tomorrow. But yeah, of course. Um, I... I sold my first screenplay when I was 21, about four months out of college, and it immediately went into production. And that was the became the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie Death Warrant, right? which was not a great movie, but I was 21 and I was on the set of my movie. And I mean, that was amazing. And so I was earning my keep screenwriter, again, four months out of college and, and making a healthy living, initially writing a lot of kind of B movies. And I would say that that would have been in 89. And I did that for about five years. And then I got the opportunity in very quick succession to write Blade and to rewrite Dark City. And Blade was the first time that, uh, I mean, I had pitched Blade, but Michael DeLuca, who was running New Line at the time, he just allowed me to write whatever I wanted to write. He just said, go for it. Uh, and, and the courage for an executive to do that is, is incredible. It was rare th those days and it's rare these days. Right. And so that script was the first time where I was just allowed to write whatever I wanted to write, whatever came out of my head. And I ended up 
the movie didn't get made for another four years. And I think we did 27 drafts of it and it went all the way kind of around the development circle to the point at which by the end and, and, and various creative executives on, on the movie had been like fired and new ones would come in and there was no institutional memory at all. And we'd have a number of different directors that were attached to it. By the end, I was literally cutting and pasting like 10, 12 page chunks of the first draft back into the script and right. no one had remembered. And so <laughs> this is brilliant. The, yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> but but the movie largely reflects it's pretty close to that first draft and and was pretty unfiltered, like good, bad, or ugly. That was just kind of came out of my brain. And my career really turned around, not I mean, it, it turned around when Blade came out, but it turned around after I'd written that because that script made the rounds around Hollywood and people were uh, that it used to happen in those days. Like there was some script people liked. And that was the first time that I started getting offered jobs without having to audition for jobs. Right. And, and at the same time, I, I got the job to rewrite dark city. And then both those movies came out in 98 back to back. And then that really changed my career. But it's funny because even even that the Blade script, I I had known Chris Nolan uh, socially even before Memento had come out. I had seen Memento before it gotten a distributor, and I couldn't believe no one wanted to pick up the movie because it was so abundantly clear that he was genius and the movie was amazing and had a hook. So I knew him a bit socially, and when I heard that he was going to do a new Batman movie, um initially the script that he read was Blake uh, and, and another um, zigzag, uh, uh, the first movie I directed, he read those right. two scripts and on the basis of that, he meet with me on Batman. So it's, that script was really pivotal in changing my career. I, I will mention, we don't, we don't have time to do everything, but like you, you breeze by dark city, which is to me, a stone cold classic, um, Alex Proyas, just like, yeah. it feels like it, it was kind of a little overwhelmed at the time by matrix for whatever reason, but like it, it was, and it, and it came out before matrix, right? Stands the test of time, a visionary film in many ways, check it out. But you mentioned blade. And when I was reading up one thing I, I came across that I'd never heard before, I'm like a, a Fincher obsessive. You developed blade for a time with David Fincher. I did. I, I developed a draft with Fincher and it was before he had done seven. So I think he had done Alien 3. Right. And I, maybe he was developing seven, which was, um, and and I and I developed a draft with him. Um, do, you, do you remember what his contribution, what he wanted to do with Blade in conjunction with you? There were surely script things um, that made me, but what was interesting was I remember going to um, our producer's office, Peter Frankfurt, and Fincher had this, there was this giant um, uh, conference table and Fincher had laid out 40, 50 books of photography and art uh, that were just open with post-it notes in them. And he just said, this is the movie. And then took us uh, our, like a two hour tour around the of like this is the aesthetic this is the vibe for this scene that scene this character this scene and it, it was such a fully fleshed out visual um pitch and there, it, there's no question that that a lot of that thinking because i'd never really seen something like that before that a lot of that thinking then infused my further revisions and informed my further revisions. so that part i'm surely there were plot points as well. But I remember that was pretty fun, fundamental for me. Amazing. Uh, I, I don't want to rehash. So there's a lot of war around, of course, the third part of Blade, which you directed. Yes. The Blade Trinity. Yes. There, there, there is a lot. You guys can look it up on the internet. There's a lot. Suffice it to the, say. Wor worst experience of my professional career. I was going to say. Question. Suffice it to say. There, there it is. Um, I mean, what do you feel comfortable even saying at this point about, I mean, you had worked with Wesley on those first two films. Did something go wrong? Was he in just the wrong space at the wrong time and it all just went to hell? It seems like he just didn't want yeah. to work in the way that you needed Look, to work on that one. It was an incredibly fraught experience. It was uh, 
personally very difficult. Uh, I, got, I was very depressed afterwards. Uh, you talked about one of the nators. It was definitely that. This is even before the movie came out. Um, despite all of that, I still think Wesley is one of the greatest actors of the current generation. And it's a tragedy that he's not acting as much as, I mean, the guy is brilliant. Uh, he was going through a lot of trouble at the time that, that all that tax stuff was happening right as we started. Got it. And in fact, on our first day of filming, there was this whole kerfuffle because the IRS had withheld like a bunch of his money. And that was all going on in the background. And it was, that's kind of all I'll say about it for now, but it was, it was a mess. If you ran into Wesley now, do you think you'd exchange words? Is it that what would you try to bury the hatchet or is it just too much? I don't know. I've, I've, uh, I might, I might try. Uh, <laughs> he I, says I, with a I, smile, he's to, the years well, have helped a little, but I, you know, yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, this isn't, I, I, I go to Al Anon because of, you know, events in my life. And so that's given me a different perspective on things. Okay. Fair enough. Um, Curious about you know they've 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 struggled in recent years to try to en enter Blade into the MCU. You must you have you had we're so close to that character for a while. Are you excited at the prospect of do you, do you see Mahershala and R-rated Blade fitting into the modern MCU? Have they said it's R-rated? First of all, I don't know. Mahershala uh, is amazing. I mean, I yeah. can't think of anyone better to take on the mantle of that they've clearly had struggle after struggle after struggle with it. So I'm really curious to see uh, where it goes, but also um, I absolutely believe that it should be someone else's story to tell now. Um, it's a, it's ironic because the, at the time that we made Blade, um, Marvel was in bankruptcy. X-Men hadn't come out. Like they, they were trying to develop, uh, you know, I think Fantastic Four, X-Men, Spider-Man. There was no thought that they would ever develop any of the secondary or tertiary characters. And they, I think, I think the purchase price to make the movie for Blade to Marvel was like $125,000, nothing. And Marvel was so concerned and wanted it held at arm's length once they heard that it was going to be R-rated that they didn't have the logo on the film either. And, and then it became this massive success and, and they realized they had this treasure trove of, of, of characters that they could exploit. But it's, I, it's ironic that now they want to bring Blade into the MCU because they didn't want Blade to have anything to do with the MCU. They were, they were afraid of, and just assumed it would be like a black mark on their reputation, no pun intended. You know, I, I actually took the opportunity to watch it again last night, and it, and it definitely holds up. I love Wesley's performance, Stephen Dorff, Deacon Frost, iconic. Um, yeah, and, and it feels like, I mean, if people don't realize it, think about the context of where, and you've alluded to it a bit, an R-rated, you know, African-American-led superhero film in the late 90s. I mean, that's hard to do now let yeah. alone 25 years ago. And that's how groundbreaking it was. And it really succeeded thanks to you and Norrington and everyone's just, it all came together. Um, okay, so you Thank alluded you. to, uh, hopefully you're, you're willing to go down a little bit on the Batman memory lane. It's obviously a high water mark for you and Nolan. Like, I mean, that marriage- It was, just, it was Batman day yesterday. It was Batman uh, day. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Batman day. A sacred day in the Goyer household, I'm sure. Um, so you, you had said you were aware of him. You were, you definitely saw that he had the goods. He comes to you. Like what, what did he have in mind? He had been given the keys to Batman, but did he have a take already that he said to you, like, I need fleshing out and, and figuring out how to execute this? I remember in our first conversation, <clears throat> he was very interested in doing a naturalistic take, uh, which was the exact opposite of where we'd gotten to with the Joel Schumacher um, uh, movies. And um, that in and of itself was kind of revolutionary at the time. He wanted to do an origin story, but uh, he, you know, in the comic books, you, you the, they, they depicted his parents being shot. And then 
I think in in, in the comic books, the, uh, Bruce Wayne is in his study and a bat like flies through the window, and and then he's just Batman. And they hit it. Yeah, and then yeah, exactly. In, in the in the comics and in, even in the movies, they just kind of elated over all of that. So he was really right. interested in exploring that. And Batman Year One had come out with Frank Miller and Dave Mazzucchelli, uh, if I'm pronouncing his name right. And but he was but even Batman Year One, Bruce Wayne returns to Gotham after having been gone for a year or two, and we just right. don't know what happened. So he was interested in exploring that period. And that was really inter interesting to me. Uh, and we had an initial conversation. And he asked me some thoughts. I think we talked about it for an hour. And I I, I had a bunch of ideas. And then I said, I don't want to do it, which is amazing in hindsight. And the, the, the main reason I felt I didn't want to do it was because I didn't believe it would get made. I had had three or four friends that had written Batman scripts that hadn't been made. Boise Keen had done a Batman Beyond. Right, and right. Andrew Kevin Walker had did a Batman Superman. And Mark, I think Mark Protasevich was another friend of mine had done a Batman. I, I, I knew at least four or five people that had written Batman movies that weren't getting made. And I just thought they're, they're just never going to do it. They're never going to take a big swing and do something different. And Chris went away and then he came back, I don't know, maybe three weeks later. And he said that he met with a bunch of people and that my take or what, it, I don't know if it was take conversation was the only thing that really resonated with him. Would I reconsider and meet with him? And, and that that's what started that path. Were you keyed into the casting process? It's been said that you were, yeah, yeah. You were, that that J Jill and Hall was your vote at the time. Was that is that true? Yeah, I mean, initially, Chris. Well, we're still close, but uh, we were. Chris was not Chris Nolan, you know, yet, and um, so in the early days, it was Chris and Emma, uh, his wife, and then Nathan Crowley, who was a production designer, who was in the garage next to us while Chris and I were writing uh building early you know kit bashing early models of of the tumbler and things like that so it was like the four of us and we would chat about all sorts of things and um there were a number of people that had screen tested and and i i i had advocated for gyllenhaal uh i mean gyllenhaal's amazing christian bale's amazing so who knows what uh and then there were a couple of different um candidates in the running for Raja Ghoul as well. Uh, Wait, is the, I, is the war, by the way, that did Daniel Day-Lewis ever get contacted for Raja Ghoul or for Man of Steel? That one always sticks with me. Did they, you guys I, ever I, come I close? Don't, I don't believe he was contacted for Man of Steel. He may have been, I don't remember okay. anyway, because it's been a while since I know, we did I know. Batman Begins. <laughs> he may have been, uh, but I remember having this conversation with Chris between some these two of these candidates uh, for Raja Ghul, and he said, what do you think? And I said, I vote for um, Liam Neeson. He said, why? And I said, because uh, the other candidate wasn't um, as old, uh, was was a, a contemporary of, of Christian Bale's in terms of age, and Liam was a little older. And I said, the whole story that we're telling is this paternal story, you know, uh, about the, the, the shadow of his father and Raja Ghul with all the Batman robes gallery uh, in the Denny O'Neill stories had this sort of paternal function. He was right. this shadow father. And I just said, for that reason, I think we aim in that direction. Now, I have no idea if that's, I convinced Chris or not. Other people could have said the same thing, but but yeah, we talked a lot about all of these various elements. Did, did Jake ever actually screen test? Like, is there footage of him in the bat costume? I believe there is. Yes. I mean, would have been a solid Batman in his own right, but a different one, of course. Yeah. It's it's hard to know. So I'm I'm curious just generally over that trilogy, you know, there was always so much conjecture from film to film which which villain from the Rogues Gallery you guys were going to choose to take on. Like how that what that process was. Like, did you start with what the story was, what the themes of the story were, and then kind of look at the Rogues Gallery yeah. and say who fits what we're trying the story we're trying to tell? Yeah. Yeah, that was Chris is very process driven and I I feel like 
again, one of the things that in, in hindsight is revolu revolutionary that, that we did in that process, we kind of stumbled into it, I suppose, was I had this sense like with the Spider-Man movies or one superhero movie started getting made and you had sequels that, that the studios would always say, okay, who's our villain of the next movie going to be? Right. And let's build a movie around that. And then Chris was staunchly against that because he said that's 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 not a bottom ground up way of telling a story let's do it in a very naturalistic way so let's let's figure out what kind of story we want to tell and um what we thematically want to explore with bruce and then let's figure out a villain that that fits that story and you know, we had all these pitches uh i remember after the dark night the head of Warner Brothers at the, at the premiere saying, you got to do the Riddler. Uh, Leo is the Riddler, you know, saying to me, you got to, you got to tell Chris, Leo is the Riddler. And I just, dude, that's not, that's not the way we work. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> not taking nothing away from him. And, and I just remember in the process, we were talking about this story and how the Joker had kind of challenged Bruce in, uh, intellectually, but, but, you know, the dirty little secret of the Dark Knight Rises is it's kind of modeled after Rocky Three, and <laughs> and you know you got to get knocked down to get back up, and and you know he's Amazing. just getting old, and yeah, instead needs... of going to Siberia, he goes yeah. to the pits to train, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> and you need you know someone that's just a brute, and I just remember saying, well, is Bane, and I was like, oh, Bane, so cheesy, I don't know, <laughs> but. uh but it's a it's a process, you know, and and it just it did it did seem in hindsight that it had to be Bane, and that's that is a a process that I've certainly carried through, you know, into the room on foundation. I mean, we're very process driven. It's you know, it, instead of deciding, well, this is what we want to happen to this character. It's where does the story lead us? Let the what story lead you. Story yeah. exactly. Even if it takes us to a place we don't want to go, right. and um, like people, I was, I loved how much people in the new season loved, you know, Bell Rios and Hope Mallow, and and I personally love them. And and spoilers if anyone hasn't seen it yet, but they, you know they had to die. It was right for the story, even though I adore those characters and I adore the, the same is true for Salver. And, you know, there are people online going, Oh, but maybe he or she's not dead or maybe this is, you know, it could change. And I just think you have to do what's right for the story. And then you have to stick to that and not impose a desire that exists outside of the story onto the story. Um, I will say just one note on Bane. You're talking to a guy that basically did a Bane voice for a year. So like, I, I'm good with Bane. Like Bane is in my psyche forever. All good. Uh, look, uh, it, uh, Hardy did an incredible job bringing Bane to life as, as Chris did as well. And uh, yeah. I mean, so much of that was Chris figuring out how to make Bane yeah. cool and not look like a, you know, a WWF uh, wrestler or WWE yeah, we're we're aging ourselves by talking WWE. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I know I do the same thing. Um, so in your head canon, wrapping up our Batman discussion, your head canon, does John Blake become Batman very soon after the end of Dark Knight Rises? Does he don the costume? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Of course. Yeah. Is there any scenario you could imagine Nolan calling you up in 20 years saying, I think we have more to do with these characters? Or do you feel like confident no. it's done? No. <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen. Not him, not his. And I, and I don't, and I don't even, I don't, I wouldn't want to do another Batman project either. You know, I mean, I, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Why even tempt fate basically? Yeah. So the legend is that Man of Steel came out of writer's block on Dark Knight Rises. That's true. Do you know it's the totally first? True. Do you know what the problem was in Dark Knight Rises? I, presumably, you solved it. It was a third. Yeah, it was a third act problem. I don't remember exactly. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. But we were just stuck. We were blocked. And Chris said, "Okay, let's just take a week off and and see if anything dislodges." And 
you know, I was sitting in my home office and nothing was dislodging. And I went back and reread all, you know, a volume of the first action comics. And then I, I wrote maybe a three page outline for a Superman story. And I, we met with Chris and he said, did he crack? And I said, no, but I have an idea for a Superman movie. And uh, he said, well, let's hear it because we all procrastinate. And he said, that's pretty good. And he said, uh, I would produce that if you want me to. Do you want to see if we can make it? And I said, sure. And I, in the same meeting, he called up the head of Warner Brothers and said, Goyer has a pitch for Superman. We should do this. Can we come in and speak to you tomorrow? And we did. And then it was on. And then he was like, now you really have to figure out the th problem with and write this other thing. But that was super surreal. Yeah. Was there was there ever a moment where he was going to direct or you would even throw yourself no. out there to direct? No, no. He Because he was still had to direct Dark Knight Rises. Right. And I was just not ready for, you know, I had never intended to go on and direct Blade 3. And I knew I wanted to direct again, but that I wouldn't have taken on a challenge like that yet. And so that's... Then I've been doing a lot of TV and I directed a lot of the foundation episodes right. and, 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 um, things like that, but no, 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 no way. And I, I promise in case you're worried, we will get to the foundation. The problem is oh, no, no, it's fine. with your resume, damn it, David, you've done too much. I can't just yeah. gloss over, man. It's all steel. good. It's all okay. good. Okay. So did were you sold on Zach immediately as the right guy for that job? Obviously the man can create visuals like no one else. Did he get it, get your, the gist of what you were going for? Did you guys vibe immediately? Cause obviously you, you worked together again on, on BVS. So that clearly he, was he working. Did. He did. I mean, it was a very deliberative process. Chris met with, I want to say about five directors and it, it came down to Zach and another um, director. Um, and, and it felt like Zach was the right, the right call. And I think Zach was the right call. Um, and it was really exciting that the fact that Zach wanted to shoot that movie handled, which was just, I just thought a brilliant idea. Um, what's, what's interesting in the Elseworlds version of what could have, should have been, not should have been, but could have been, is Chris had also met with Tony Scott. So there were, there's a version of a Tony Scott Man of Steel in some parallel universe that, uh, and I just think Tony Scott is, he doesn't give get as much credit as he should be given as, because he was a really phenomenal director as his brother. Um, and that's just a movie I would have also loved to have seen. Was Tony into it? He was, he was game? Yeah, and I don't know exactly what was going on i mean he passed away relatively soon after that but um that just as a, as a parallel elseworld story yeah. i think that would have been really interesting were you, were you guys and i'm sure you're sick of talking about the killing of zod but were you surprised at what that became did you know in your heart of hearts like oh this could touch a nerve with the fanboys and become like just a a cause celebrity I guess, but again, this was like, it just felt what's right, right for the story. And the idea that Superman doesn't kill is a, it's, it's not canon in the comic books. I mean, it, it's like, it, it, it's, it's this idea that came out later and it just felt, um, the, the whole, the whole point of, it was this is a story about him becoming Superman and understanding uh, the import of of who and what he is and what it means to the world and 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 stumbling and and grappling with this and so um, and and then having done that, deciding I can't I I have to make sure that 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 just never happens again in, in any possible way and so I think that the look, people can debate and debate whether or not we should have done it. But I felt for that story that we were telling and Chris felt the same, so did Zach, that that was the right way to go, which was a much more air quotes, realistic take on Superman. Right. Um, you know, there's a, there's a scene I wrote that 
uh, never made it into the movie. It, it was a flashback with Jonathan Kent in which Jonathan is taking um, Clark out hunting and, and they, they kill a deer uh, Clark. I think he's like 12 fires and he, and he, and he misses. So what, he doesn't miss, he hits the deer, but it's not a kill shot and it, and, and the deer suffering and his father has to finish the deer off. And it's um, and young Clark is incredibly shaken by it, and and they have this conversation about the responsibility of taking a life. And I just felt we we had to cut for time, also for budget. And I've I, I've always wished that scene could have made it in the movie because I that I I felt like that was also a bit of a tee up into right what happens thematically, what's going on totally exactly. Totally. Are you, in retrospect, look, of course, then you collaborate on BVS and a lot of the fans, you know, there's a lot of dialogue about like what went down with Cavill and the run of him and Superman. And I think a lot of us felt like, oh, where was that solo Superman sequel? Like we always wanted it. In retrospect, I don't know, it's it's easy to say this now, but should there have been a solo Superman story before BVS? Did Was there a rush to kind of throw too many yeah, characters in there. Yeah, I think so. I think I think so and I I I just think I know the pressure that we were getting from Warner Brothers was just we need our MCU. We need our MCU and right. and I was one of the people that was just saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not run before we walk." Like, "Hold hold on, hold on, hold on." Like they were very methodical in the way we built it. We just can't jump, you know, into all of these things. But the other thing that was really difficult at that time is um you know, th there was this revolving door of executives, both with Warner Brothers and DC. And it just felt like every 18 months, someone new would come in and someone new would come in and someone new would come in. Right. And we were just getting whiplash. And and then just, and, and every new person that would come in, like, we're going to go bigger. And I remember at one point, um, the person that was running Warner Brothers at the time had done this big, release where they had pitched like these 20 movies over the next 10 years that like none of which were written yet and like it was just so crazy how much sort of architecture was just being built you know on air and i just it for me that some some of the stuff that was going on in that time was just an example of like this is not how you build a house right you know was was but, there a was there a superman story in your head that you would have liked sure. to yeah there, there 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 was and and uh but it's what it should have could have you know anything you can tease of what it was no i just think it's bad form in that case it's it, like it's one thing to talk about a scene that i wrote for a movie that did come out but i don't know i just think All it's good. bad form so uh, what, what's what's it like now looking kind of from the outside in? You've kind of made it seemingly a conscious effort. You're still working with some ginormous IP. We're about to talk about Foundation. But you've made so much of your career in superheroes and comic books. Do you feel kind of like, have you cleansed yourself? Or are you like, I'm, I have some distance. I can watch others kind of play with the toys now? Yeah, yeah. And look, I have three sons. We don't, they didn't even know what I did for a living for a while. We don't have any stuff from my film or TV shows in the house. Um, it wasn't until we were filming Man of Steel that my two oldest sons, they 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 went, uh, they were on set for some of it, that they even knew what I did. Dad would just go away and they had no idea. And we, we walked out of Man of Steel and they were like, wait, what? What, what do you do? <laughs> you know, but they, of their own accord, became huge sort of Marvel and DC comic book readers. And it just so happens that their, their dad knows a shit ton about all that stuff. And so they, they lucked out in that regard. And I, I personally, I don't ever want to touch a superhero movie or TV show ever again. Uh, Cause I've just done it too much. I think right. I, I did it too much, but I can absolutely enjoy it as a fan with them. I mean, we, we see all the movies, we see all the MCU movies, all the MCU shows and, and you know, some we like, some we don't, we dissect them. And, um, and that's, it's just funny because they just came to all of that stuff, you know, on their own. And my, it's also interesting, like my 13 year old is reading a lot of the current 
for whatever reason, a lot of the current DC comics. And I'm just way out of touch on all of that. Like I'm just like completely out of touch. In this case, sometimes it's asking me about characters that didn't exist 10 years ago, but right. um, I'm better at my Marvel lore, believe it or not. All right, let, let's talk a little foundation because this show, man. Okay, so you just wrapped up your second season, and I yeah. can only imagine this is such a big swing. It's so it's like all the stuff, the cliches are true. I think what they've said about this for years. This is what we're looking at stuff that was written in the '40s and '50s, but it is kind of the granddaddy. It's Asimov. It's it's a touchstone for everybody that grew up with sci-fi, and it's been tried, never brought to the screen, but but certainly developed many different times, including I think. You you dabbled with it a few different times. Um, Almost. I was offered it a couple of times. Yeah. So is this a case of like it all lining up? Like, look, we have the technology. Apple has the money and wherewithal to devote time to this. The audience is primed for complex, dense sci-fi. It feels like for any number of those reasons, even 10 years ago, this it wasn't the time for foundation. And maybe even for yourself, you weren't in a place to dive into something like this. Am I on to something? I think, a, I, I think you're 100% accurate. All of those things. I think, um, you know, when we started developing it up, about five years ago, uh, before the sort of, you know, during the streaming boom and and in the shadow of Game of Thrones and and all of these streamers wanted their Game of Thrones, their big whole genre show. And... Uh, we'd seen with Game of Thrones that there was an appetite for these big kind of novelistic uh, shows uh, that the audience might have the patience and uh, that they could sustain uh, a lot of characters. Um, I think I had turned 50 and I was a more mature seasoned writer. I, I don't know that I would have been as adept at, at doing had I not had that experience with Chris Nolan and I worked with James Cameron, one on a film that was made, one on a film that has yet to be made. And so uh, I think my approach to storytelling matured a lot because of my collaborations with Chris and James. And um, <clears throat> and then in the case of Apple, it, it felt like the right project for Apple. It felt like a good fit. Yeah. And there was someone at Apple, uh, Matt Chernus, who just loved loved foundation and he had actually called me up and when he'd heard that scott Anson and i had acquired the rights to it and we we're going to be pitching it he it they hadn't announced that he was going to apple yet and he said i can't tell you where i'm going but i we're the right place for it uh i promise you and and um they really have been and so uh just all of those things you know came together what is when you return to the text, like what does Asimov give you and what does Asimov not give you? Clearly, he wasn't writing like as many authors do now in the back of their brain. This is going to be a movie, a TV show. That was clearly not. He wasn't even writing that it was going to be a novel. Maybe a play. Yeah. It was yeah. Be, yeah it, that it was going to be collected. You know, right. He was just trying to make a paycheck, any paycheck, uh, really young, 21, 22, just pitching crazy stories um, to uh, Campbell at. Um, uh, and, um, you know, he was just desperate to sell anything and, and stop working at his parents' candy store. Uh, and so they sold one and then the, his editor said, give me another one. And, uh, he, so he was just building this in real time. He was making it up as he, he was going along. And it, it's not really until you get to the, the, uh, third novel that it's even a proper novel. Uh, and and he was revising his mythology as he went, and then in the prequels and sequels, retconning his mythology and combining it with the iRobot stuff. So, um, Chris calls it interrogating the text, right? You have to like, you read it, you reread it, you you try to distill what is it about Foundation that makes it so seminal. Uh, a lot a lot of the ideas have been strip mined by Star Wars and Dune and other things that had come after it, even though Foundation had come first. And so the 
so the first thing you have to decide is what's what's still unique about it and and then how can we take something that might be old hat like a galactic empire and make it seem fresh even though people are so familiar with it in star wars and then you have to look because we're all victims of circumstance we're all victims of our time so asimov was was writing the foundation stories in the shadow of World War II, uh, you know, as Jews that had been forced to leave Europe with a fear of Nazi Germany rising up again in this, you know, um, this the whole new world order uh, changing. And, and that, when we were developing it five years ago, that was just not the world we lived in anymore. So you, you have to then figure out a way to make it relevant. And since all science fiction is about today and it's a mirror shining back on society, you think, can I update the metaphors that we're interrogating? And so when we started developing uh, the show, and I initially developed it with Josh Friedman, we, we said, well, what's 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 happening? Who are the big, you know, pressure points? Okay, it's, it's me too. It's the seeming fall of, you know, it's Black Lives Matter. It's the seeming fall of, of the white male patriarchy. It's the rise of nationalism. It's it's Trumpism, and and some people say, "Oh my God, this show is woke. This show is woke." And it's like, no, no, that's just the stuff that's hap happening I'm, now. I'm looking it's out my window. That, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's just what this. It's it's climate change. It's just all right. the shit people are arguing about. It's just undeniable that that's that's top of mind. And so the show then has to interrogate that because right. that's what's going to make it relevant. In, even if we're not standing on a soapbox and we're preaching about this stuff, it's in the background and people, it's, it's, it's relevant in ways that people might not, sometimes they're conscious of it, sometimes they're not conscious of it, which is make, makes it resonant and makes it evergreen. And yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and yet as you interrogate and kind of like imbue the show with all these issues, then every all everybody wants to talk about is Lee Pace uh, fighting naked in the opening scene of season two. Now, how aware yeah. are you, David? You're a smart man. You know what the people want. You're thinking- Oh, uh, 100%. I was the one that suggested to Apple that we release that scene early. And then, I mean, I asked Lee if he was okay with it first, and he was, but that I felt, you know- Season one was fairly well regarded, but I think a lot of people considered it maybe too highbrow or too dense. By the way, I, I happen to think season two is also pretty highbrow, but <laughs> but it, it was intentional that I wanted to broaden the palette and have more fun and say that it was a big tent and and come out of the gate with some scenes and some characters that having seen season one of Foundation, they might not expect. But you, you also alluded to... Um, not exactly the drawbacks of Asimov, but but the one of the other challenges was Asimov is not particularly in the first few books. He he wasn't known largely for creating very memorable or very deep characters. Right. He was interested in exploring ideas and having his characters largely be mouthpieces for these ideas, and but. Largely, people tune into a dramatic show on television for characters, not for ideas. Certainly, the characters are first and foremost. You have to care about who lives or dies. And the fact that people are debating whether or not we should have killed Selver, whether or not we should have killed Bell, I mean, that's that's the bread and butter of, of television storytelling, right? It's, it's fundamentally soap opera. And uh, someone once said that in movies... Uh, characters solve other people's problems in TV. They try to solve their own problems or explore their own problems. And I think that's kind of a truism. So one of our big challenges was figuring out how can we take some of these characters that are relatively cardboard or ciphers that don't have much of an interior life and how can we flesh them out and make them characters that, that you care about and that you're invested in whether or not they live or die. So the, uh, it's said that you pitched Apple basically eight seasons, 80 hours. As we speak today, yeah. season three hasn't officially been greenlit. There are high hopes based on the reaction. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Is, th is that still kind of the plan? Are there scenarios where this, like if they only give you five, you'll figure it out? Or is it like, I need I need my eight. I need my 80 guys. 
at the start of it, I was like, I need my eight. I need my 80. Uh, but now knowing that it takes at least a year and a half to make just you shouldn't do the math on your yeah, own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I am. And and it's really hard. And so uh, if you were to ask me today, look, it's I've got a lot of wind in my cells with the reaction of season two. But if you were, you know, depending on the week, I might say, I think I don't think I can survive past season four. Just uh so it depends. I so what what I'm hoping to do, no matter what, is end the show, uh, you know, on its own merits and 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 bring it in for a soft landing uh, because I hate when the rugs pulled out from under me as a viewer. So I I I think I can do a satisfying off ramp at the end of four, one at the end of six, and one at the end of eight, and I'm just hoping that. You know, if the show keeps going and my relationship with Apple is in a place that they can give me enough, you know, that we can have a conversation about like right. when when you want this thing to end hypothetically, so that that you know I have enough time to turn the battleship. Fair enough. So I've taken a lot of your time. Let me end with some semi uh, rapid fire stuff. Sure. Uh, wait, wait, in if you want. Uh, just curious, your take. Uh, having done so much with Batman, did you like Matt Reeves? Take on Batman? Did he find a Loved different it. angle in? Loved it. Yep. Uh, James Cameron, you mentioned. Um, am, I, am I ever going to see Fantastic Voyage? It's funny. I was literally just talking to yeah. Louis, Louis Leterrier about this. He's like desperate to still get involved. So uh, I, I, I developed I developed a script for Fantastic Voyage with James, producer that Guillermo del Toro was going to direct. And it oh. got fairly far along. We were deep into prep. Uh, and then it kind of all fell apart. Um, that's a really cool script. Uh, and it was a great experience. What, what do you make of these arguments that crop up every so often when we talk to the luminaries, the filmmaker luminaries that kind of denigrate the comic book films as kind of not worthy of discussion among the great films? Does it bother you? I'm not going to even name names, yeah. but you yeah. know what I'm talking I think, about. I'm, I think it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's a, it, comics are also a mature art form now. And yes, it's still dominated by superheroes, but, you know, like I, my family loved Nimona, you know, uh, thought it was a really successful film, you know, based on a really wonderful comp. And I'm still waiting to see a Mouse Guard movie or a Mouse Guard TV show, which is another wonderful uh, comic. And it's, it, it's an art form just like any other medium. And so I, I think that's a, a bit short-sighted line you've written that's been quoted the most in your just day-to-day -day life do you take a, a certain pleasure when you hear something from blade or dark knight or batman put it back to you i mean sometimes my kids will quote stuff not even knowing that i've written <laughs> which is crazy <laughs> the problem here's the problem with the batman stuff i don't remember in some cases right. who wrote what right? right you know um i think that uh uh, some motherfuckers always want to ice skate uphill is certainly a line that's quoted back to me, which was kind of a hybrid between Wesley and myself. Um, you know, uh, but it's, <laughs> it is, it is funny to see things that I've been involved in or, or written lines for like show up as these, not just a meme, like, like a third generation meme where people right. don't even realize like where it came from. And that is, that just makes me feel really old. Do you have a favorite like kind of geek out moment on set when you've like seen someone in costume, some surreal moment? You're like, these are the characters I grew up seeing. I've written them into the situation and now it's happening in real life in front of me. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can, I can cite two specifically uh, that I had real out of body experiences from, you know, one was the first day that we were filming Jared Harris welcoming Gail into his office and and showing her the prime radiant because I had first read foundation when I was 13 and that is you know uh largely I, I mean that that scene cues relatively closely to the story and and so the fact that I was doing that my father gave me the book I never imagined I would become a screenwriter director or producer and that Jared Harris was my first choice for Harry Seldon and we got him I mean that was that was really easy but another moment when we were filming Man of Steel, we were in Illinois and we were 
um, in a cornfield and we were filming one of the flashback scenes with Jonathan and Clark Kent. And it was, it was magic hour. And, and we were worried about trampling the corn. So we just had a very, there were 30 people like out in the corn and there weren't any chairs and uh, there really wasn't anywhere to sit. And we were in between setups and uh, I was sitting there with uh, Kevin Costner and we were sitting in the bed of this pickup truck, just he and I, as the sun was going down in this cornfield. And I was just, fuck, I'm, I'm like sitting here with Kevin Costner in a cornfield in Illinois, and I'm from Michigan. Uh, so we, we were like three hours from where I grew up doing a Superman and he's, we're just talking about life and shooting the shit. And it was just, yeah, it, yeah. I have out of body experiences all the time. Amazing. And last thing for you. Okay. I'm going to give you the keys to one genre kingdom that you've touched virtually everything, but you know, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, Star Wars, Star Trek, David Goyer, Godspeed with this entire franchise. You can do what you want with it. What do you I wrote an I wrote an unproduced Star Wars movie that Guillermo del Toro was going to direct. Stop it! Uh, wait, 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 David! I have six follow-ups. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when? Well, tell me something. That was about four years ago, and then I have a. I also wrote an unproduced. Uh, I have a scriptment for a uh, an Origins of the Jedi movie, also for Star Wars, that I wrote for them. Uh, that took place twenty five thousand years before um, the first Star Wars film. Uh, so that would have been, I got to do the Vader Immortal VR thing, but, uh, uh, dabbling in Star Wars, you know, would have been fun for me. Uh, um, what happened, you know, Guillermo, Guillermo and Star Wars and you seems like a no brainer to Greenlight. What happened? There was just a lot of behind stuff going on at Lucasfilm at the time, but, uh, it, it it's a cool script. Uh, yeah. You, you have, have you had Guillermo on the show? Yeah. 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 You'll, you'll, I should put that up. You have to ask him about that next time he's on. It's a cool script. I will. There's a lot of cool, there's a lot of cool artwork from it that was produced. Oh my God. All right. I'll pass you my info. You can feel free to send it over anytime you want, okay. just for fun. Um, David Goyer, uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm such a fan. I've, I've, I've watched your work. It's part of my life the last 25 years. So it's a real tr uh, pleasure to kind of like dip into it. Congratulations on Foundation. I mean, if folks haven't checked this out, um, what are you waiting for? This is 20 hours of ginormous, big entertaining yes it's heady at times but this is entertaining stuff from the master isaac asimov filtered through the master that is mr david goyer uh congratulations and i hope uh i hope they let you make a lot more of these man me too and thank you for having me it's it's been really fun thanks man and so ends another edition of happy sad confused remember to review rate and subscribe to this show on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts i'm a big podcast person I'm Daisy Ridley and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>